In our last episode, we discussed American Supreme Court case, Harvard UNC decisions, whereby the court reversed a 45-year-old precedent on affirmative actions on the ground that it violates the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act. In our discussion, our thoughts are frequently turned to the situation here back in Malaysia. We know very truly in the practical reality the existence of affirmative actions in Malaysia across all sectors, economy, education, civil service and others. Is affirmative actions a constitutional foundation of these nations? Or is it simply a policy made by the government of the day? This is what we want to explore in this episode. So welcome again to this show and we have Lyra here today. Hello everyone. And Lyra, last week we just did affirmative actions in America and right after that, so many discussions in Malaysia. It's quite unbelievable the timing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I didn't realize that we have affirmative action as in literally we use the same phrase mm -hmm. here in Malaysia because I always thought about racial quota. That's it. Yep. Then after that, it's almost like your eyes are enlightened to just see all these words. It's so interesting. And it's one of the things that kind of motivates us to compare system with the American system, right? Because we have so much similarity, very multicultural. And, you know, our ex-Prime Minister just said that we, our constitution does not allow multicultural existence. Uh, but we'll talk about that in another episode, right? Yep. And... And then, you know, some call this a rainbow nation. Then th the similarity with America is also the federal state tension, which is happening right now, you see. And we'll talk about decentralization a bit later. But what are some of the things that, you know, it re reported in news media? Well, I mean, just as the United States, they are overturning this whole racial preference thing. Mm -hmm. In Malaysia, we see that, oh, there's a continuation with this by our Prime Minister. And we thought about reforms and our Prime Minister just came out a few days ago. Mm -hmm. And he just mentioned that the quota system will continue to be implemented to enable Malay and Bumiputra students to achieve balance in the universities. Yeah, so very shocking. But we're going to look at Shadid's uh, response. But before that, there are some other responses also, right? I mean, just very quickly, you know, SUPP, um, they basically say racial quota undermines the very essence of education. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, right? Spot on. And then Kwa Kya Soon, of course, the frequent critic of the unity government and DAP. I mean, not maybe not so much Anwar, but he was constantly attacking DAP, right? And he, he wrote a letter to FMT. Basically, he said, Ultras, uh, quota system is ultra-virus. Basically, he said, under the constitution, it's illegal. So we will explore a, a bit on that. But we just want to highlight some of the headlines. I mean, all these came out the last 10 days, which is so very shocking, yep. right after the Harvard-UNC case. But maybe you'd like to go through what Shah Sadiq said in response to Prime Minister Anwar? Yes. He basically he did this in a press conference mm -hmm. that you can actually find it in their Facebook page. Yep. So Said Sadiq, he mentioned it there is that importance of a new system rather than like an old one, basically, that has been in place. So he mentioned this. The new system should take into account various factors such as the socioeconomic status, region, parents' background, core curriculum activities and academic performance of the applicants. 
So this new system should also not discriminate against individuals based on their religions or race. So for example, if you come from a poorer neighborhood, for example, maybe you have less uh, privilege and less access. So let's say you come from a very rural place in Sabah and Sarawak, and the university say, okay, we're going to allocate maybe five engineering positions, maybe five medicine positions. Do you think that's affirmative action? No, I don't think so, because at the end of the day, you are still looking at their performance, the mm -hmm. academic performance, but just that you sort of allocate a quota for them because they were a bit more challenged. I mean, geographically speaking, because maybe there's not much infrastructure for them to get to where they need to. And of course, you have like scholarship and all those sort of things. But before we even go into scholarship, just the entry itself, I think I, I would agree to that rather than you based on skin colour because skin colour is, I think it's the ultimate <laughs> racist. Yeah, I mean, later we'll talk about the quota system for education more in depth. But we are talking about you have a system of points maybe, you know, it's like you have academic, you have co-curriculum and maybe if you're from rural, we give you a bit of more points to encourage you. I, I think that's fine, you know, rather than you know, we kind of set apart 20% for a certain race. And remember last week, we talked about the whole affirmative action based on race. It's just an insult to a person because it's like, hey, you can do this simply because of your skin color. Otherwise, you are useless trash. So that, that's the thing. And, and we'll, we'll get into that later. No, actually, interestingly, you mentioned about that because I, I do a bit of research and I found that Actually, it wasn't really something new. I mean, just like mm. how we had NEP, originally it was meant for good. And similarly, in, in the United States, the affirmative action was meant for this similar scenario that you have just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So in the event, let's say you, you want to hire an engineer, for instance, you have the white people who has this skill, you have the Asian who has this skill, you, and also you have the black people who have this sort of skills. But you have to understand at the very beginning after coming out of civil war, we talk about all these rights that are being given to them. And you have to understand the mentality that they need to shift out from. Mm. That you come from like an era where you have slave, slave ownership is perfectly fine to slave ownership is totally abolished. So that slavery sort of mentality was completely, have that barrier had to be broken down completely. So they had this affirmative action really to help this group of people to come up. But again, it goes back to skill. It mm. goes back to the need base. So it, it's not like because of your skin color, therefore I give you this job. But because you have the sort of skill that is needed to perform and because you are more challenged because of that sort of era that you're in and hence you're given a preference. Mm. That's all it is. But at the end of the day, it's still skill-based. So I think in Malaysia, it's also very similar just yep. that it was being weaponized. It was being hijacked. Now, interesting you mentioned all these things because I think it, it just kind of leads us straight to the next point we want to talk about, which is NEP. Because we can't talk about affirmative action, we can't talk about quota without talking about NEP. So, so Lara, I know you have done quite a bit of research on NEP and you know our previous project and things like that. But maybe you'd like to just quickly, you know, NEP is a, is a huge topic. It went on for 20 years and then it was extended into another 
I don't know, reincarnations. But maybe just quickly uh, do a quick rundown on what was the intent, what was the goal. So this was introduced back in 1971. Mm -hmm. So at that time, the whole Malaysia has just came up from racial riots. That was concentrated in one area. So we're not going to go there. But this whole plan, actually, it came with the second Malaysia plan. Mm -hmm. So there was actually two prone strategy to go for this whole thing. So the first one is, of course, to eradicate poverty regardless of races. So you have that, the first point. Then the second point is to restructure society to reduce actually the economic gap between different kind of races. So those are the two prongs and it sounded good. Yeah, it wasn't race-based. No. I mean, if we look at the plan properly, it wasn't race-based. And I, I think when a lot of people saw the original intent of NEP, they were frankly quite shocked because all this while they thought after May 13th, it was aimed to bolster the Malay, but it wasn't. It, it, they recognize that it's a poverty issue. Yep. But somehow, in the, in the mind of many people, NEP remains like, yeah, a, a manifestation of Ketuangan Melayu, if you like. Yeah, I mean, at that time, we really just focused on, because of the name, the mm. new economic policy. So we just focused basically on the economic policies. There is like the income disparity. Yes, we have talked about it at length in our one of our earlier episodes where we talk about the Razak legacy. Mm -hmm. But what we didn't realize was that the education itself was very much hijacked mm. back then as well. Because then that's when the racial quota was being introduced in 1971. Now, very interesting you mentioned this because this is going to be one of the key points of today's presentation. The, the quota for education only came in during NEP's implementation. Is that correct? Yes. And I think this is very important because we have the constitution in 1957. We have the special privilege for the Malay in the constitution even at that time. Of course, we have a change in the constitution. We'll go through that later. But what I want to try to show is that the, the whole quota, and today we want to limit more to the, the quota issue, not, not the overall affirmative action because those are too wide, okay? That the quota for education especially only started in 1971 after NEP was kind of pushed. Of course, we have Mara. Mara predates 1971, but you have things like UITM, 100%, Bumi, enrollment, which is, now you think about it, it's really crazy, right? It is really, and of course, in recent time, some of the things not quite related, but we have the Mara Digital Mall. Yeah. <laughs> Remember? So, so they, all, all these kind of things comes to mind because these are all quota. It's like you can have a store because of your IC, because of your race. But anyway, I think we just want to make one more point about NEP before we move on. Is that, even at that time, at the height of the racial riot, at the aftermath of May 13th, even then, the government, the minister, oh, them, they recognize that NAP needs to have a sunset clause. It cannot go on indefinitely, right? Yeah. 20 years. Then, of course, in 1990, I mean, depending on how you hear the story, some say Mahade went to talk to all the Barisan National Component Party and say we need to extend it for another 25 years. Other versions say Mahade wanted to end it and say the Malay cannot rely on Tongkang. You know, I don't this sounds very not plausible. But then all the other component parties wanted to retain it. 
Well, interestingly, one of his main objective for continuation of this whole new economic policy in a different form, different mm. name, was that because there was such a huge income disparity again between the Malays and the other races. So then you have to begin to ask, so what is the effectiveness of this whole mm. policy? Because yep. you have a system, you tested it out on the people for 20 years and it's not working. And well, there is a saying, right? If you continue to do the same thing over and over again, mm. but you expect a different kind of results, you're insane. And that's basically what our leaders have unfortunately led mm. us to believe. I mean, the boomy equity did improve. But then what many people did not realize was that the Malay equity was basically government-owned, was basically GLC. You know, it's like, it's almost like the, the government become bigger because of that, you know, our position on big government. It's like, yeah, people will be like, big government can help you solve problems when you have pandemic, etc., etc. But the moment they are not in favor of a certain policy, your livelihood could be taken away just like that. So yeah, 30% on paper, but when you look at the majority of the grassroots people, the majority of the grassroots, Bumi Putra, who was supposed to be helped by the policy, they did not benefit tremendously. Yeah, you look at the Felda settlers. Mm. I think they really didn't benefit a lot at all. And recently, of course, another big news, right? Prime Minister kind of waved, uh, forgive the debt. You know, it's like, oh, that's another big topic. We need to go into that, you know, billions of dollars. And, you know, my first reaction when I heard that was, it's kind of similar to YNDB, that we had to come in, uh, government has to come in and pay. Bail out. Yeah, bail out. Whose money? Our money. Yeah, taxpayers' money. So, but anyway, that's something for us to discuss a bit later. So, so the quota system, now we were doing some research on quota system, right? And we, we saw some reports say the quota system kind of stopped, but the Bumi Putra enrollment continue to be on the rise. And one of the observations uh, some commentators were making was that a lot of non-Bumi Putra, non-Malay simply gave up you know, any application into the, the matriculation system because the, really the quota system starts after uh, SPM because all the way to SPM, everyone gets free education. No, no issue on that. But the moment you complete the SPM from matriculation college onwards, that's where a lot of quota system comes in. And even if a lot of non-Bumi get the course, I get into the university uh, that they apply, the course offer often is not what they want. And we have seen people, right? I mean, sometimes you say, oh, what, what do you get? Three choices. One, two, three. It's like bang, bang, bang. Useless, useless, useless. And that's why a lot of people decided that, uh, yeah, we, we must well just continue with, with uh, relying on ourselves. So, yeah, but what, what's your take on that? I mean, you, you have, I'm sure you have friends with this kind of experience and not, not everyone has the privilege of having our parents able to support them in private education. And but do they, do you, I mean, what's your experience with people who felt like maybe they didn't get the, the right deal based on the merits? Well, I think a lot of them, they would want to definitely try for scholarship. Mm. But because again, scholarship is also somewhat based on racial quota as yep, well. Yep, absolutely. So if they don't get the scholarship, Sometimes it's like, oh, it's almost like a doom for them, you know? Mm. So 
So some, of course, they will try various other private scholarships and things like that. But some of them, you really just see that they can't really break through that economic barrier. Mm. And they really just have to go through. They had to go through those systems and then end up maybe doing certain jobs that they don't really like. Yeah. Like maybe like teacher's program, those sort of things. Because sometimes we, we just have to admit that some of the economic policies are really not favorable mm. to the, the bottom group of yep. people. So hence, it, it is going to be very, very difficult. I mean, we talk about a lot on countering systemic corruption, systemic poverty, but you have to understand the word systemic means that it is a system. Mm -hmm. Like Big Brothers create this sort of system and you're stuck in it unless you get a bailout. Yeah, yeah, bailout again. <laughs> okay, the next thing we want to talk about, and this is really a very interesting one, which is the Constitution Article 153. Now, by the way, you know, 153... Some have argued that you can't, you can't discuss it in terms of wanting to repeal it. And in fact, some people have been detained under Sedition Act in the past. But we want to talk about it today because I think it is the crux of the discussions. Now, nobody is arguing uh, the merits of it. Nobody is saying that it should be taken away. But what we want to do is really to look at the, the article and compare with some of the... Look at some of the background and really try to see if there is a link between this and NEP. Because I think right here now we can say we, we do not think there is a link. It, these are two separate issues. Okay, so Article 153, of course, I think many of us are very, very familiar. It is a, it's a clause that deals with the special rights, special privileges. And it's actually very, very short, okay? And I'm just going to read it to you. Article 153, Part 1. It shall be the responsibility of the Yandipetuan Agon to, to safeguard the special position of the Malays and natives of any states of Sabah and Sarawak and the legitimate interests of other communities in accordance with the provisions of this article. That's it. And then, of course, 2 and 3 talk about all, all the detail here and there. And now, one of the very interesting things which I kind of alluded in the last episode, but I think not many people kind of hear, is that this clause almost exactly the same was found in Singapore Constitution even today. And I think it's worth reading, right? Singapore Constitution, Article 152, very close. So I think Singapore must have just copied our Constitution when they left and maybe changed a bit. And it's still there, 1522. And let me read to you. Singapore Constitution. The government shall exercise its functions in such manner as to recognize the special position of the Malays, who are the indigenous people of Singapore, and accordingly, it shall be the responsibility of the government to protect, safeguard, support, foster, and promote their political, educational, religious, economic, social, and cultural interests and the Malay language. Wow, even more comprehensive. So, one of the things, now of course we look at Singapore and people will be like, oh, Singapore is different, they don't have the argon and things like that. But what happened there was really they are looking the special right from the position of language uh, you can have your own religion you can have your own way of life so it's really what you can do rather than what the other person cannot do see it's a very positive it's a very affirmative kind of thing and now of course the the whole thing about article 153 if we go back before you know before independence day in 1957 there was the read commission 
So read commission, of course, was the, the commission kind of assembled to determine whether Malaya uh, was ready for independence. And one of the things which I found very, very interesting because this was in the read commission report. And they said, this was what Tunku Adurama and the other Malay rulers, they have asked, they have communicated to the commission. This is if a country was authorized, you know, for lack of a better word, British will have to authorize, right? And say, quote, in an independent Malaya, all nationals should be accorded equal rights, privileges, and opportunities, and there must not be discrimination on grounds of race and creed. Wow, wow, wow. But then, of course, 153 came in because of the economic reality. At that time, the Malay had less than 4% of the entire economy of Malaya. So it was a real concern. But very similar to NEP, I think, at that time when they kind of put in here, they wanted to, yeah, they wanted the, the nations to be able to help the Malay, but there has to be a sunset clause. And so that's why I find it very interesting your research shows that the quota for education did not come in until 1971. Yeah. So what happened between 1957 and 1971? We know many people graduated from UM, for example. So that means this Article 153 did not give the right for quota system. It was NEP who gave the quota system. Would you agree with this statement? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, even just look at what our Prime Minister mentioned concerning this continuation of the racial quota in the universities. He said, if not, I'm quoting our Prime Minister here, so, quote, if not, we will see the same disparity that occurred at University Malaya in the 1970s and 1960s, where there were no Malays in the engineering faculty and only 12% in the medical faculty. So there was an effort by the late Uncle Abdul Aziz and the ministry at that time to help the Malays so that they can better compete. End of quote. Actually, you now I wonder what is the composition of local university participation along race line? I think if we find out, I, I, I think I, I'm just guessing, okay? I'm, I'm guessing that Prime Minister's argument is very, very weak. I would imagine that the high majority of enrollments will be Bumi Putra. Want to wager? <laughs> but anyway, the constitution was amended in 1971 in line with NEP. Yep. And this actually was uh, uh, the active part of the quota system. Now, I want to read this because it is again to, for, for, for the viewers and listeners to look at it and make out your own mind. I, I, I think the constitution was drafted in such a way it's not very hard to understand. But people just don't want to talk about it because it's like very sensitive. Don't talk about it. But we are in the time, I, I mean, look at Shade, look at uh, many people, look at Kwa, you know, look, even SUBB came out and, and said about this. It, it's like people are talking about it because we are we're in a situation we, we have to decide what is the best for our country. We cannot continue. We have tried this for 50 years. It doesn't really work, right? But anyway, there was an amendment and an additional uh, clause, one, Article 1538A. And this was introduced in 1971 in line with NEP, okay? And very interesting. I'm going to read to you uh, maybe the whole thing, but it will help you to, to understand. Notwithstanding anything in this constitution, 
where in any university, college and other educational institution providing education after Malaysian Certificate of Education, that's SPM, okay, or its equivalent. The number of places offered by the authority responsible for the management of the university, college or such educational institution to candidates for any course of study is less than the number of candidates qualified for such places. It shall therefore be lawful, etc., etc. So lawful for what? For reservation, proportion. So you can do the quota. But what is the prerequisite? If, if it's less than the number of candidates qualified. So that means if you have 50 places for engineering and you have 50 qualified students, that's it. No quota because you have enough students already. But that's not how it works, right? It's like now we have 50 spots, we already have quota, 20, 30. You see, if you read the constitution by itself, it, you, you can use a quota if there are no takers. Very, very different. So it's like, if we look at companies, I'll give you another example. Um, you know, because Lyra, you are, you are in the process of doing an incorporation. Right? So it's like, if suddenly your company wants to offer new share, and we always, this is a right that is very, very foundational in companies that we call it a preemption, preemptive right. So the company, someone, let's say you want to sell your share, you must allow other shareholders to buy first. Yep. If they don't want to buy, then you can offer to other people. That's very common. Yeah. So uh, Article 1538A basically is saying university, if you, if you don't have qualified applicant, let's say you have 50 spots, Sadly, nobody wants to study engineering. Nobody wants to be medicine, want to be doctor. <laughs> yeah, right. I see if that's going to happen. And then you have 20 spots left. Then you can use the, the quota. This is what it says. Um, but then, of course, you, you know, we, we kept saying, you know, how do you explain UITM 100% to Bumi Putra and things like that? Even a lot of Mara Institute, college, only Bumi Putra. So really... I think you can say that those are government policy. You can say those are ministry policy. You can say those are Malaysian plan or whatever and NEP. I, I have no problem with that because government can make whatever policy they want. But I, I have a problem when you try to link that right to 153. Yep. I, I think there's a bit of disconnect there because if you want to rely here, it's really if there's any leftover, you can use it. So I know people are not very comfortable to discuss this, but, uh, but many, many areas, you know, we talk about um, foreign investor coming in 30%, booming putra. You know, I've just been doing a lot of research for foreign investor. You know, they want to buy millions and millions. And, you know, certain purchase unit, EPU, economic planning unit approval. And one of the hardcore conditions is 30% booming equity. And that's going to be very, very difficult uh, for any foreign investor, unless they really understood uh, the business model here, they really want it and they are able to have nominees and things like that. So, so these are the things that will impact us, um, lasting impact, right? But I now want to kind of pivot into another direction. Then I, I know so far we've been just diagnosing all the bad news, but we, we don't want to end with bad news only, right? But I want to go back to the last episode and we, we alluded slightly earlier that if you support affirmative actions, 
is the most racist act because you are basically telling a person you are useless except for your skin color. So, so that's very, very bad. But let's look at the other side. Let's look at the, the, uh, the people who miss out because of affirmative action. And, and we, we talk about people who couldn't get scholarship. SPM get 10A, perfect results. They have perfect cur curriculum. They represent state and things like that. They, they should be getting uh, whatever course they want to do, but then they get like, I don't know, psychology. <laughs> yeah, nothing against psychology, but you know what I'm talking about. Some humanity subject, which are, are not what the person wants. So, so now, now let's look from that angle, okay? Those, I mean, I'm not sure we can even use that word. Those suffering from affirmative action, is, is that the right word? Yeah, I should think so. And they, they, they miss out. And that, okay, so, so I want to put to you that this sense of unfairness is what is driving migration away from Malaysia. Would you agree? Yes, I would. I mean, we talk about brain drain mm -hmm. all the time. Yep. You have to think, what sort of policies, I mean, what are they very, very much unhappy with? It's this sort of things that seemingly unfair to a certain group of people because of certain affirmative actions that are, that sort of policies that are in place. Then we really have to begin to think again because Malaysia is a multi-ethnic country. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is what our Prime Minister mentioned. And he mentioned in the Al Jazeera interview that a need-based approach will help the Malays more than any other more than any more than the race-based policies because mm. the race-based policies have been proven to be used by the few elites and the cronies to benefit themselves now the question here to our prime minister are you going back on your words <laughs> you see what, what I wrote here is what's the deal with Anwar Ibrahim <laughs> and now of course we, we, we kept we have our own theory right that Leading up to state elections, um, pandering to the potential green wave, okay, you know, maybe it's still excusable. And, but would you agree, I mean, we, we kind of mentioned a few times here already, patience are running thin. I mean, I'm talking about the loyal supporters of, of Pakatang Harapan governments. Now, we, we recognize the challenge is a unity government. It's not a full mandate. We recognize the challenge of green wave. Um, how you know you know we talk about last week how the affirmative action was basically driven by siege mentality, and you know you you feel like you are under attack and things like that, and yeah certainly the the American black will feel that because of their history and things like that, uh, but of course here the, the Malay. Now of course uh, you know you have seen article right people will do posting and say you know all the position of authority, the royal family, etc. You know, basically all positions of power in Malaysia are occupied by Malay. You are not at, at disadvantage. But I would say that the siege mentality feeling is a real and genuine one because of how the elite have manipulated the people. And it, it's true. I, I mean, I, I think we, we need to recognize that the ordinary grassroots Malays are suffering, but the elites are benefiting. So the siege mentality is not unreasonable to a certain extent, I would say. But I would say compromising at this stage would not do well for mm -hmm. the current government because yep. you have to understand what 
Barisan National represent. Correct. The UMNO, I mean, basically what they have been doing over the last 50 years, it has proven not to be effective. Mm -hmm. And you also have past leader who is very adamant that race is important. Mm. Religion is important. So while you are trying to like ignore or maybe trying to counter the green wave, I think compromising is not one mm. good strategy because it, it's almost like we are running towards that with a siege mentality, like yep. what you mentioned. And the siege mentality, I just have to quote Justice Jackson on what she said because it's so bizarre if you think about it. I mean, she will be one of the person that is really benefiting from this mm -hmm. whole affirmative action. Yep. And yet she was also the same person who is basically like an activist in the Supreme Court. Mm. So I'm quoting her. So quote, she said to demand that colleges ignore race in today's admission practices and thus disregard the fact that racial disparity may have mattered for where some applicants find themselves today. So it's not only an affront to the dignity of those students <laughs> for whom race matters. It also condemns our society to never escape the past. Hello? I mean, we are trying to escape from our past. You are confining us to the past. Yeah, but he, exactly. I mean, this whole thing is really just confining us to the very thing which we are trying to countering. So I think it's really, really bizarre because if you think about it, I mean, I would really agree with what Andrew Tate mentioned in, mm -hmm. in the recent interview with Tucker Carlson that he, he felt like the society is only just being divided to two groups of people. Mm-hmm. A group of people who think and a group of people who don't think. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting sort of proposition that he mentioned because when you think about this whole thing, you're right, really thinking, yeah, at the end of the day, why are we here? I mean, why are we working so hard to, to talk about all these points? Then you begin to think, why would people continue to be under this sort of siege mentality? Then you begin to realize, huh, yeah, maybe mm. this group of people really don't bother to think, really don't want to be accountable at all. Yeah, he mentioned something real funny, right? And because he was talking about Matrix and Tucker never watched Matrix before. Yeah. And, and, and Tate was like, one of my everyday to-do lists, you know, fight the Matrix, escape the Matrix. It, it basically, Matrix to him is like a control system that try to conform you to a way of thinking. And he's like, I'm going to resist that. And so one of the examples that he gave was, of course, he was in prison for a while under some charge. And, you know, he has his own regime, you know, to, to keep fit and things like that. And he said, even in those circumstances, he never missed any session, any training session, because he, because he's like, the matrix, for example, the system will be, oh, now you're in prison, feel sorry for yourself, don't do what you need to do, and just kind of do nothing. You know, he refused to be conformed to that kind of existence. But coming back to the whole discussions, um, now I want to just point out and I think this will be instructive for us because we, we do want to talk about what are some of the things that can be done. But remember, right after general election, you have the potential formation of government under Prekata National with Muhyiddin. GPS already had a secret meeting with Hisham Muhyiddin. And of course, that was with BN. And so, so if you have Prekata National, you have BN, you have GPS, then on surface, it still looks like some sort of multicultural kind of thing, right? It still looks like it, right? But then that's really the, the Malay-centric, Islam-centric, Prekatan, uh, version 1, version 2, whatever version. We have seen that before. And I think 
we we don't want that because that is not a representation of the multicultural Malaysia. And so so my, my point is even like, like GPS are that I, I don't think they are committed to multicultural multicultural society. They are more committed to establishment uh, divide and conquer. I agree. Mm. So 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 one of the things that of course um, is Anwar Ibrahim has been trying to decentralize. So he has given a lot of power back to Sabah and Sarawak. Now, of course, the, you know, as long as you are still under the old regime or GPS and things like that, they were still more likely to work with UMNO type, uh, PN type. I think you just can't escape it because that they are more similar than different. And, but very interestingly, that one of the development today that, uh, or yesterday we saw right, a few days ago was PSB, right? We talked about PSB, uh, Won Sun Ko's in, in Sarawak kind of like becoming a bit more pro-independence in the last general election then they were quiet and suddenly today or yesterday came out and said we're going to support Abanjo GPS we're going to support Anwar Ibrahim and they signed an MOU and the representative from GPS is not Abanjo but it's Dong King Singh see the madman at immigration and now the rumours are swirling that Dong King Singh's party and PSB are thinking of merging. So I see that as one of the play move for decentralization because they'll be like, if we are bigger, we have at least um, six, seven uh, state representatives. We have at least three or four member of parliament. We are still something. We, we are sizable. We can cause your government to collapse. Don't play with us. And I don't know. I, I see this as one of the way where we can break away from from, from this kind of dominance, this kind of, uh, yeah, siege mentality, I guess. What one the way, and but but of course the other thing about Anwar is, I mean, Amno is in his cabinet. Right now, uh, I mean, so many events. Zahi Hamidi was there. So, are his hands tied? I mean, how much can he do? Because imagine all the things that he's going to do is going to be a slap to Amno's face. But interest, I mean, I mean yeah, you, you can, I, I, I'm no, looking forward to your... I think if we think about it, they only ask for certain portfolio. Mm -hmm. Technically, his hands are not, maybe not as tight as we think. Like education is definitely within his purview. So I think there is still a bit of room to... Yeah, so you're saying that the Bakatan should govern on their policy and to the extent that, uh, you, you know, because uh, I'm not, you only have 26, you, you can't really demand major policy uh, directions in the government. And yeah, I, I guess that's one thing, but of course there's the other argument that the entire civil service slash deep state basically, uh, you know, are, are, are you know, more controlled by the AMNO type of operator. But I think that's another episode. And, you know, we don't want to get there now. But we want, I guess, our listeners and viewers to understand some of the challenges. We are, we are definitely not making uh, any excuses. In fact, we already said many, many times that if he continues, I mean, if Prime Minister continues this path, he may lose more and more support in days to come. So, so what other things you think can be done? And we're going to wrap up with this already. Well, I guess in the 
couple of episodes ago, we mentioned that Muda probably is a viable workforce. Mm-hmm. And there are certain policies that is seems to be agreeable. I think like even like how Site Sadate was very, very bold in just saying this contradictory statement mm. against our Prime Minister. So perhaps people could consider, I mean, if this is something that aligns with their view and is this something that they wanted for the state and if they could garner enough support from the mm. grassroots people, they have a voice. So I felt like that's not perhaps a bad thing at all. Yep, yep. That when you talk about this, it's like if you... If the current government could see that maybe people are not really happy about this whole thing. I'm not saying that, I mean, of course, we the voters, you need to vote wisely of what mm-hmm. sort of state government that you want for your own state. I'm just saying that if you're unhappy with like the current government pandering too much to maybe their partners, mm-hmm. and this is something that you don't really want to see, Perhaps this is the immediate thing that you could make your voice matter. So, yep. which is why it's very, very important. I mean, even if it's just state election, you should go out and vote yep. and just vote for a voice that you think most represent your views. And I felt like it's not really a bad thing at mm. all. That, I mean, this guy, he's really, I mean, like Sadiq, we have to re- really give our hats off to him because he's really, really bold in saying all these sort of things and, and coming out solo. It's already a bold move. Mm. And then now you're talking about this sort of things. And I think what we are looking at is a very principled leader Mm. at the end of the day. Because, I mean, Prime Minister will be very, very supportive because you mentioned before that moving away from race base will actually be most helpful to the Malay group of people. So perhaps that is really the core support that you should garner from Mm. your base. Yeah, remember when when Shah Shadid was kind of replying, um, almost rebutting Prime Minister, and this is what he said towards the end. He said the ones who lose out are all Malaysians. Talking about if the quota system continues, not just a singular race or particular religion. As I had previously shared, we need to see Malaysia as a national project. So, I, I recall that was Pakatan message, but they seem to lost the initiative. So, so I guess. This is something I mean, we'll see during campaign if, if they come to their senses because if, if they continue to, to pander to the, to the feelings of their partners or, or to the fear that there will be a backlash of, of uh, the green wave rather, rather than playing to your strength and, and say, look, we, we want a new Malaysia. And of course, you know, some, some maybe even in Pakatan doesn't believe that it will happen, doesn't believe that it can happen. I would not be surprised at all. But that's why we even say, right, uh, you know, remember we have our own discussions that it's not a bad thing if Slango, for example, fall under Prekatang. You know, brings your no gambling, no alcohol, no cinema policy to Slango. And well, suddenly, Friday. <laughs> yeah, and, and then it will be very, very interesting because all of a sudden, the issues will be forced upon the moderate and urban Malay. You have to decide what you want. I'm actually all for it. <laughs> but anyway, I think that's all the time we have for today. And uh, I, I know we didn't get into too much detail, but you know, if there's uh, any comments or questions or any other issue, I, I know this is a complex discussion, right? But viewers and listeners if any portion today you want us to kind of deal with 
uh, in more in depth, then I think we'll be happy to do further episodes on this. Yeah. Okay, so that's all for now. Until next time. All right. Bye bye. bye. bye.